are so many technicalities for you to remember as you're working on finishing up your pretrial memo from the large structural issues, um, your arguments, adding in creative persuasive techniques, and the small details such as citations and punctuation. So here's a walk through the pretrial memo to help you make sure that all of the components are serving the purpose that they're meant to serve. Remember, each word in your memo has a purpose. Here we go. see on our pretrial memo isn't part of the court document itself. It's part of your responsibility in LP to follow the course policies. So that's the single line LP header that's included in that header space on the document. And the purpose of this is so that when I print them out and a windstorm comes and hits and the pages blow around, I know who they belong to. And for the same reason, be sure that your footer has page numbers starting on page one. And while we're on the topic of your header and footer, now's a good time to check that both are in Times New Roman 12 point font, just like the rest of the text of your document. Next in our pretrial memo final submission is the caption. Why do we have a caption? Because this is a court document, one of millions of court documents. This information lets everyone know what state, court, county this case is in the names of the parties and their designations as plaintiff or defendant, and the case number so that everyone knows where this document belongs. Also, when the judge reading the memo looks at the caption, they'll know who the parties are and they'll have a quick reference to all of that important information. next item we see on our pretrial memo is the title of the document. Why do we need this and why is this in bold? Well, each court case has multiple documents that get filed throughout the course of the proceedings. When flipping through those dozens or even hundreds of documents, the legal reader's eye will go right to that all caps, bold, underlined, just on the bottom line, document name. And so that's why it's very important that that document title gives all of the information that the legal reader is going to need in order to discern um, what document is doing what. Next is our introduction section. What's the purpose of this introduction? It's to let the reader, in our case the judge, know in a concise way 
what they're getting themselves into and why. What is this document even for? And if you're successful, it's a chance to start planting the seeds for the theme and theory of your case. So we start by telling the judge what we want. Grant or deny the motion because the parties were not or were married at common law. You haven't at this point told the judge about what is even required under the law for a common law marriage yet. But you want to let the judge know the conclusion that you would like them to reach after all is said and done. Next, you're letting the judge know how we got here. The case was initiated by plaintiff's complaint alleging a common law marriage and seeking a divorce. Defendant then filed a motion to dismiss on the basis that there was no common law marriage to dissolve. The court then issued an order converting that motion to dismiss to a motion for summary judgment because there are affidavits that the court is going to consider. And the court said that we need to prepare memorandums for the court to consider. And here you go, court. Here's my memo in support of or in opposition to that motion for summary judgment because the parties either are not married at common law or they are married at common law. We're keeping things general here, and we're not citing any law except letting the court know that the motion to dismiss was converted to a motion for summary judgment pursuant to Rule 12b. However, here in the introduction, you will be citing to the record, so be sure you've done that where it's appropriate. And finally, remember, this is a persuasive memo. While you can't argue the law yet because you haven't told the judge what the law is, you can start dropping some tiny crumbs about your theme and theory of the case when you're telling the judge what the purpose of the memo is. Once you've oriented the judge in the introduction section, you move on to tell the story of Callie in Arizona in the Statement of Facts. This should read as a natural continuation of that last sentence of the introduction. Basically, you've told the judge, here's my memo in support of or in opposition to the motion because they were or were not married, and here's the story about how they were or were not married. Let the judge settle in and immerse themselves in the story of this couple. Remember here to be persuasive in how you tell their story, incorporating your theme and theory of the case throughout, without being harsh or dramatic or argumentative. Minimize those bad facts, by now we all know what they are, and emphasize your good facts. Remember to have a citation after every single sentence. That's a citation to our record. That means if you have a sentence that you're thinking does not need a citation because it's sort of your summary or characterization, that sentence does not belong in the statement of facts. Here again, we round out the facts by bringing the judge up to the present day including the filing of the complaint and the motion. But wait, you already told the judge about that in the introduction. 
Okay, well, this is your chance to be brief and remind the judge of these facts in a persuasive way. If you're the plaintiff, maybe you talk about how you felt compelled to file this complaint. And if you're the defendant, maybe talk about how you're compelled to file the motion to dismiss and why. first part is going to be your main point heading on the umbrella issue, letting the court know whether the motion should be granted or denied because the couple is not or is married at common law. Then the overview paragraph. What is the purpose of the overview paragraph? Let the judge know what the law is and what they need to follow when considering whether to do what you're asking them to do or not, grant or deny the motion. So you have your main point heading, then your first sentence has to basically restate that information. So what to do here in order to not sound repetitive or redundant? This is a chance to incorporate some flavor, some persuasiveness, some way of saying what you want the judge to do and why that makes the judge think that is what they want to do. That this is the outcome you're seeking and it seems like a logical conclusion to the judge at this point after they just finished reading this very persuasive statement of facts describing the party's relationship. Okay, so after that, you want to let the judge know what is the standard for the granting or denying of a motion for summary judgment. And remember, again, be persuasive. If you're the defendant, you do not want to emphasize language such as the court shall only grant summary judgment if... You might not want to make it seem like summary judgment is hard to achieve or rare if you're the defendant. On the other hand, for plaintiff, you want the judge to think that granting summary judgment, essentially deciding whether this couple was married as a matter of law, is not appropriate at this stage of the case. Next, in the overview paragraph, you're going to include your overview rule, your umbrella rule. Remember our research assignment from the start of the semester? This is the umbrella rule on common law marriage itself. You want to touch on the elements and the standard, again incorporating persuasive techniques. If you're the defendant, play up the clear and convincing standard. It's a high burden for the plaintiff to meet. If you're the plaintiff, of course, you want to downplay the burden that you have as you set out the rule statement. So for both plaintiff and defendant, don't get too far into detail on the intent and belief elements beyond mentioning them. You're going to get a chance to do that in the individual tracks. Last in your overview paragraph. Now that our reader, the judge, knows all about the law and the elements that are required to prove common law marriage, you're going to summarize your argument. 
now incorporating your main arguments on the intent and belief elements, essentially your sub-point headings. And then at that point, you'll start getting directly into your intent and belief tracks. remember about our tracks. First, we have a formula, T-R-R-A-C. Stick to that formula. Our T, the thesis statement, is our sub-point heading. It's a full sentence that appears after the A or the B. Then the text will start immediately with the rule on the element that you're discussing. For the next part, the rule explanation, remember you will have two topic sentences for intent and at least one for belief. Make sure your topic sentence is helpful in showing what about the couple's relationship demonstrates either a serious mutual intent to be married or for belief, a general and uniform belief in the community that they're a married couple. Don't just restate the rule in your rule explanation topic sentence. Be very specific. Be helpful. Then, use our cases to illustrate the topic. Use the holding facts reasoning every time, and that's the holding on just that element. The court held that there was a serious mutual intent to be a married couple. The court held that there wasn't a general and uniform belief in the community. We're not talking about whether the court found that there was common law marriage at this point. And yeah, check yourself. Only focus on that element. Don't remind the judge that you want them to grant or deny the motion. Nowhere in the tracks are you reminding the judge that there was or were not a common law marriage. This is a space where you're just demonstrating the elements that have to be met. So be direct, be clear about your position. Remember that the burden is on the plaintiff to show by clear and convincing evidence that the elements have been met. Don't tell the judge what courts have done in the past. Just talk about what does and what does not constitute intent and belief by illustrating that with prior cases. So you're not saying courts have found or a court will find or a court should find. Just get right into the information. You're going to have cites to the law and here in the tracks, you don't need to cite to the record of the case. That's because every fact you mention here in your A paragraphs will have already been mentioned and therefore cited to in the statement of facts. Another thing to pay attention to here is keeping your A paragraphs totally parallel to your RE paragraphs. And be specific. Use legally relevant facts to illustrate why or why not the plaintiff has established intent or belief in this case. Last but not least, you are going to be concluding. 
you're going to have a conclusion section at the end that is comprised of one single sentence. Now, this is different from the mini conclusions that you're going to have in your tracks, the C of track. And those are just addressing the element that you're discussing in the specific track. Now, this conclusion section at the end of the entire document is the one sentence that's restating um, that you are the plaintiff and you are requesting that the court deny the motion for summary judgment. You don't need to repeat any of your arguments at this point because if you've done your job, everything was covered in your argument section. So you're going to start out by just saying for the foregoing reasons or accordingly, so-and-so respectfully requests that the court grant or deny the defendant's motion for summary judgment and then just identify the main reasons at that point, okay? You want to finish strong and you want to be clear and concise. So that's a little bit of a walkthrough of our pretrial memo. Hopefully this was helpful to you. Um, you want to make sure that you also go through and check on your citations and that everything is precise and where it needs to be. Good luck, and I'll talk to you soon.